Hey, and thanks for tuning in to the Father's House podcast. The Father's House exists to see people discover life in Jesus. We hope that today's message brings you fresh life and renewed hope as you listen. Enjoy. Well, uh, hey, today's going to be a little different. Um, we, uh, we had the band kind of stripped back acoustically this morning because uh, we're going to end uh, this morning with some worship again, and we're going to come to the table of the Lord, as the, uh, the, the church would say it, but we're going to take communion together as a family. And over the next couple of moments, I am going to kind of unpack the Last Supper, uh, the details surrounding the cross. And my hope this morning is that as we talk about the Last Supper and we talk about the cross and we take communion together at the end, that there would be kind of some fresh revelation for those of us who've maybe done this for a little bit of time. And, and by the way, just let me mention this now. Um, I know what some of you are thinking. You're like, hey, bro, I know you're kind of like new to this whole lead pastor thing and it's Palm Sunday and we talk about the cross on Good Friday. So like you're a little mixed up in the, in the timeline of events. I understand that, uh, but in light of the fact that we will not be having a Good Friday service and we're gonna be hosting the Passover Seder here, uh, I wanted to make sure that we had an opportunity together as a family to take communion before Easter to remember the sacrifice that Jesus made for us. So I think it's gonna be a powerful morning. And uh, I know for some of us, maybe those who've grown up in church, uh, you've, you've done the, the, the communion thing quite a bit. Um, you know, maybe you grew up at a church that did this every single weekend. And so if you're in your 40s or 50s or 60s, uh, you've eaten a lot of crackers and, and you've drank a lot of grape juice at this point for sure. Um, and, and the problem sometimes with doing something over and over and over again is that it can lose its power. It can lose its significance. It can become kind of a routine or a ritual or just some dead religious sacrament that we've always done. And we sort of forget the power that is found in remembering what Jesus has done for us. Like, I don't know if you remember when you first got your driver's license, but when you first got your driver's license, you were incredibly excited to get into a car and drive no matter what the agenda was, right? If you had siblings, you know if you were the first one to get your driver's license, you became the family taxi at that point, and it was your job to bring all of your siblings wherever your parents wanted to take them. But if you're in your, again, 30s, 40s, 50s, 60s, I doubt you've walked into your car in the last couple of weeks and gone, yes, I get to drive especially if it's near like traffic time somewhere in San Francisco. Okay, that didn't resonate with a lot of people. Let's try this. Um, maybe when you're a young man and you get your first like facial hair and you're like, I have arrived. Or maybe it's ladies on your legs. I don't know how this works, but. And for the first time you get to shave. You're like, this is it. I have arrived at adulthood. And you're sitting in the mirror shaving your two hairs like this is awesome. But what happened 10, 20, 30 years later? You don't get excited about shaving any longer, right? You're not celebrating as you shave. It has become an obligation, something you have to do. Well, if we're not careful, the body and the blood of Jesus and the sacrament of communion can kind of become the leg shaving and taxiing of Christianity, okay? Like it can become something we just do over and over and over again, but it's lost its potency. And today I believe, not because of me, not because of an atmosphere, but because of the power of God's word, as we look at what was accomplished by the cross and some statements that Jesus made at a table with his 12 disciples, I think that the power of, of those statements can transform our lives before we leave this place today. So uh, thank you for the one clap in the back. Awesome. Mom, appreciate that. Great. Uh, if you got a Bible, open it up to the, uh, the book of 1 Corinthians, and uh, we're going to look at the words of Paul as he recounts the Last Supper with Jesus. And I'll give you the, the backdrop here. Uh, at this time, Jesus has been walking with his disciples for about three years, 
and uh, he's gone all throughout the known world in that area of the world, and he's preached the gospel, and he's healed the sick, and he even raised a dead guy, and some stuff has been happening as a result of Jesus's ministry. Uh, And Jesus gathers together with his disciples here three years in to have the Passover meal. And uh, this was a a, a tradition. This is something that they would have uh, been very familiar with in their culture. They did it every single year for the last 1,400 years. And Jesus sits down at this table with his disciples. And as they begin to go through the elements of the meal, he begins to redefine what some of these elements mean. Things that were very familiar to them and they understood them to mean one thing, Jesus begins to redefine them to mean something else. And so here's what it says in the book of 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 21. Paul says, for I pass on to you what I received from the Lord himself. On the night he was betrayed, the Lord Jesus took some bread, he gave thanks to God for it, and then he broke it in pieces and he said, this is my body which is given, which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup of wine after supper, saying, by the way, it's wine, not grape juice, okay? Just gonna throw that out there, but offending four people. Okay, great. Uh, This is the cup of new covenant between God and his people, an agreement confirmed with my blood. Do this to remember me as often as you drink it. For every time you eat this bread and you drink this cup, you are announcing the Lord's death. You are proclaiming what he did until he comes again. Now, most of us are very familiar with those two elements. Uh, We're gonna throw a third element of the the supper in there as well today and talk about it. And I'll read this scripture now so we have a framework for it later. John chapter 13, verse two. It says, in supper being ended, the devil having already put into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son to betray him, Jesus knowing that the father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going to God, rose from supper and laid aside his garments, took a towel and he girded himself. After that, he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and wipe them with the towel with which he was girded. Then he came to Simon Peter, and Peter said to him, Lord, are you going to wash my feet? And Jesus answered and said to him, what I'm doing you don't understand now, but you will know after this. Peter said to him, you shall never wash my feet. But Jesus answered him, if I don't wash you, you have no part with me. So we're going to talk about these three elements, the the body, the blood, and the bucket around the the Last Supper. Or if you're a little hood and you kind of like it this way, we can call it the bread, the booze, and the bucket, all right? Whatever you want to title the sermon, you can can take it. Uh, Let's pray and we're going to jump into it. Jesus, we love you this morning, and uh, I thank you that you are here among us today. I thank you that as we gather, we don't do so in vain. We don't do so to go through some rituals, some religious routine, but we're here because we know that when we gather together in your name and in your presence, you have the power to change us and transform us. I ask that as we look at this this 2,000-year-old conversation around a dinner table, as we look at some things that we've probably done over and over and over again, for those of us who've been following you for any length of time, I pray you'd breathe fresh life, fresh, fresh revelation, and God, that you would use this to awaken our faith today. Let, let something transform on the inside of us before we leave this place today. In Jesus' name, and everyone said, oh, come on, you can do a little better than that. Amen, all right. Work with me today, people. I know it's a little quieter, but we can get loud in church. It's good. Uh, thank you. All right. <laughs> Woo! That's, <laughs> I love it when like dudes do that. Like, how you doing? Woo! Anyway, 
how many of you like to eat? Anyone in the room that really enjoys eating? Good, okay, you can put your hands down. I'm in the right church. I am the kind of guy that really appreciates a good meal. I, I don't think that there's anything more satisfying than sitting down around a table, eating good food with good people. You lay your head on, on the pillow that night, and you're like, tonight was a win. I just love that. Uh, and because God loves me, he gave me a wife that really knows how to cook. Like she can throw down in the kitchen. And the amens you're hearing right now are from people who have been to my house before and experienced my wife's cooking. Like today, if, if Robin invited you over to the house to have dinner, she would probably have some really elaborate spread for you by the time you showed up. Maybe if she knew a few days in advance you were coming, uh, she'd go out back to our smoker and she would put like a big old brisket on there that she had dry rubbed with some, some spices and it would sit there for about eight hours or so until it got really, really moist. And then to finish it off, she'd throw it in the broiler and just get a crisp on the outside so that it's like crispy on the outside but buttery on the inside. It's, it's just so good. Or, or, or maybe she would uh, cook some filet mignon for you and she'd do a little balsamic reduction on the top with some goat cheese and then a, a side of some air couvert with some roasted peppers and some mozzarella on there. Come on, like my girl knows what she's doing. Back up Aisha Curry, right? Like she's got it going on. She really knows how to cook. Um, and, and because of that, when people come to my house and they experience a meal around the table, uh, usually they walk out very satisfied. But have you ever gone to a dinner before? Maybe this is someone you met for the first time, or uh, maybe it's, it's, it's a stranger. You just somehow got invited to the table. But you sit down, and there's that awkward moment as dinner is being served where you realize, I have made a horrible mistake. And the devil has lied to this person for years and told them they know how to cook. Have you ever had that moment before? Come on, be honest in church. And you're like, we're going to go to In-N-Out after dinner tonight. Yeah. I, I remember um, years ago, I sat down uh, to a dinner table. And, and, and when you go to other nations as, uh, on a mission trip or you're going to lead uh, a conference or something like that, they tell you when you go, like, you do not complain about the food. Just eat whatever's in front of you. That's the respectful thing to do. And so I knew that going into this. Um, but I, I sat down at this dinner table in the Philippines and I was in um, uh, Davao in the Philippines. And uh, the, this, this family serves dinner and, and they lay before me something called um, a durian fruit. Has anyone ever heard of the durian fruit? Uh, I'll show you a picture of it right here. Now, by nature of this fruit, it would be assumed that the Lord created it knowing that you should not actually enter beyond the surface because it, I mean, nobody looks at that and goes, we should probably eat that. But someone over the years cut into this thing and found that the flesh of the fruit was edible. And apparently it tastes really, really good. The problem is it has an absolutely horrendous smell. Like it smells like, I don't even want to mention it. It's it just, just think of the worst thing you've ever smelled in your life and then take that to the nth degree. Like it is the worst thing ever. Literally when you eat it, you're not allowed to eat it with bare hands because the smell will get on your hands for weeks and, and you have to like eat it with gloves. So they serve me this fruit with gloves and I'm like, I'm good, you know? <laughs> don't invite me back to the Philippines. That's fine, okay? I'll, I'll go back, it's, it's good. Awkward dinner table moment for sure in the Philippines. But the, the most awkward moment I've ever had at a dinner table, uh, if, I think my, my dad is, dad, are you in the room? Um, hey, Pops, um, I'm gonna put you on blast for a second here. Um, I remember my mom was in the hospital. I don't remember what it was for. And uh, my dad was responsible to cook dinner for our family. Uh, my mom's Italian, four foot 11, knows how to throw down, makes some meatballs, she's awesome. Um, my dad, on the other hand, should probably stay far away from the kitchen at all costs. And uh, this day, instead of doing what a normal dad would do, like take your kids to McDonald's or you know do something that is edible, he decides to get creative in the kitchen. And so he grinds chicken up and he forms it into a loaf 
and he puts it in the oven and it comes out and he says, guys, tonight we're having chicken loaf. I'm like, that's not a thing. That's not a thing. No one has ever said chicken loaf is a thing. Very awkward dinner table moment for sure. I've sat at many dinner tables and been served things that don't make much sense. And I think to myself, like, this is, this is probably a meal I should run away from. But when I, when I read this story about Jesus and his disciples, I got to believe this is a pretty awkward dinner table moment. Like, have you ever been to someone's house and, you know, on the Food Network channel, like, today we have made for you. Imagine Jesus, today I have made for you my flesh and my blood eat up. Like, that is a very awkward conversation for sure. No one has ever said to me around a dinner table, I'm serving you my flesh, I'm serving you my blood, bon appetit. I probably wouldn't stick around long enough for dessert. But the disciples do not run in this scenario from the dinner table and go, okay, he's preaching cannibalism. He's clearly lost it. Let's move on to another, you know, an, another teacher, another rabbi. They sit and they receive this seemingly awkward meal with Jesus. And, and the reason for that, the reason this was not such an awkward occurrence for them is because they were not foreign to the idea of the food at the table symbolically representing something else. In fact, according to scripture, they were sitting down to enjoy the Passover. And the Passover meal was laced with symbolism. Uh, that meal, 1,400 years prior, for the first time took place as the Israelite people were uh, exiting from, from Egypt and God delivered them with the hand of Pharaoh. And, uh, and he said, hey, I want you to eat this meal and I want you to remember every single year that I delivered you from slavery and I brought you into freedom and I brought you into the promised land. And so every year, Jewish people would celebrate their exodus from slavery, this, this independence from Egypt. And they would do so by eating a bunch of food, each element of that meal representing something. Now, we don't have time to go through all of that today. We will at the Seder on Friday, shameless plug, you should come uh, because it's incredibly powerful to see the symbolism. But imagine it like this. Um, it's Independence Day. It's 4th of July and you're sitting down at the table and somebody holds up a hot dog and they say, this hot dog represents the cannons that were fired and they set you free. And these mashed potatoes are like the hills that people gave their life on. And now you get to experience independence. Well, that's kind of what the Passover meal is like. Everything representing something. But for 1,400 years, these disciples understood what the elements un, uh, around the table represented. And Jesus says, now we're going to flip the script. Now we're going to completely redefine what some of these things mean. Before you were remembering Egypt, before you were remembering the old way of thinking, but I'm here now, and so I don't want you to remember Egypt. I want you to remember me. And he begins to redefine these elements using his own life. He starts by taking a look at the bread. Now, in the, uh, in the, in the old Passover meal, this was matzah, it was unleavened bread, uh, the bread represented the fact that Deliverance came quickly from God. He said, I don't want you to wait for your bread to rise. I want it to be unleavened. I want it to look flat because this is a sign that my deliverance came quickly. Expediently, I delivered you from Egypt. And I know you were there for 400 years, but the moment I made a decision to set you free, that's when I set it into motion, that your deliverance came quickly. But now Jesus says, this bread is going to represent my body, which is broken for you. 
And don't remember Egypt. When you eat this from now on, I want you to remember me. Now, the disciples didn't really have a framework for this yet because they didn't understand what was about to take place. But Jesus knew very intimately the details that were gonna unfold over the next couple of hours. Because a few hours after this meal, Jesus was going to be handed over to the Roman guard. He was going to be beaten. His flesh was going to be broken. And all of it was for a purpose. Not just for the forgiveness of sins and not just for salvation, although obviously that was accomplished at the cross. But the Bible gives us some very intimate details about how Jesus' body was broken and what it affords each and every single one of us today. Let, let, me, let me unpack some of this for you because I believe that if you understand what Jesus did on your behalf, it can transform the way you leave this place today. Because his body was broken in a myriad of ways. We know from the story that the, uh, the guards, they put a crown of thorns on his head. And if you've ever seen the thorn bushes in Israel, they're, they're two, three inch long uh, thorns that they would have just shoved down over the top of his head and it would have pierced his skull and gone up against his bone and blood and flesh would have been all over the place on his head. Very gruesome act. But it wasn't just to portray him as the coming king or the Messiah. The Bible says that he received a crown of thorns so that we could receive peace of mind. His his. His head was broken so that all the stuff that happens in our head could be made whole. Today, if you're here and you deal with bouts of depression or anxiety, or you've had suicidal thoughts, or, or you wake up in the middle of the night in fear, and you've got all these scenarios that play through your head, or maybe there's even mental disorders and diagnosis and things that you've been facing, Jesus's body was literally broken so that what's happening up here could be made whole. You were not fashioned and wired to walk with depression or anxiety or fear. He paid the price with his broken flesh so that you could be made whole. We're also told that he was whipped 39 times, one shy of the death sentence with something called a cat of nine tails. And, and the cat of nine tails was uh, this torture device that the Romans had concocted that was made up of broken pieces of glass and some sharp rocks. And they would literally tie someone to a whipping post and they would take the, the cat of nine tails and they would throw it over the back of this person being punished. And as the, the shards of glass and the rocks would latch onto the person's body, it would begin to literally rip pieces of the flesh away from the human being tortured, many dying right there at the whipping post. And Jesus took 39 of those for us, but again, for a purpose. The Bible says in Isaiah 53, and then later on in the New Testament in 2 Peter, that by his stripes, by the cat of nine tails, by the bleeding of his flesh on his back, our bodies can be made whole. You heard the story this morning. We do not serve a God that limited his miracles to four gospels in a book and then decided to stop once it was all over. But we still serve a God today and we believe in a God in this church today that by his stripes, our cancer can be made whole. By his stripes, our blood disorders can be made whole. By his stripes, the pain and the anguish that we face in our physical bodies can be remedied. Yes, we believe in medicine and we're grateful for doctors, but we 
serve a God that goes far beyond modern medicine and in one moment can make your body whole because of what he accomplished at the cross. His body was broken so that our bodies could be healed. It goes on to say that in Isaiah 53 that he was bruised for our iniquities. And I love this thought. What is bruising? Bruising is, is internal bleeding. When, when you see a bruise on somebody's flesh, it's a sign that something on the inside has already been broken. That something is bleeding from the inside. And that word iniquity in, in, in Hebrew, it, it means bends or, or twists. And it's like there's something on the inside of us that just is out of alignment. I don't know if you've ever experienced this before. I think all of us have aspects of our life that fit into this category, but we've all got certain bends or twists, certain sins that we're predisposed to commit and things that we can't seem to shake, temptations that we always face and maybe often we, we fall off the back of the truck again and we make the same mistake again. Or maybe it's a, a proclivity, a desire that you have that you know is ungodly that fits into the category of iniquity. Things on the inside of us that maybe we've never even shared with anybody. We've never let it on the outside. But you serve a God today that is so good that doesn't just heal what happens on the outside and he doesn't just heal what is obvious to everybody else, but even the stuff on the inside of us is of great concern to him. And he said, I will allow them to punch me and bruise me and, and swell up my flesh if it means that the inside of my followers can be made whole. He was bruised to untwist those areas of our life so that we could be made whole from the inside out. And, and, and then it says that he was pierced for our transgressions. Obviously, the end of the story is, well, not the end of the story. <laughs> we'll find out about that next week. But the end of the story, he, his hands and his feet are nailed to a cross. His, his flesh is broken on his hands and his feet, symbolically for our transgressions, the Bible says. What are transgressions? They're sins of commission. They're things that we know we did wrong. Our feet representing the times that we've run away from Jesus. Our hands representing the actions that have been displeasing to him. And he said, I'm, I'm willing to pay the price for every sin you have committed, every sin you will commit. Every time you walked into my church and every time you walked away from me, I will pay the price with my broken body so that our relationship can be made whole. He said, I want you to remember my body was broken for you. I think far too often in this journey of faith, we settle for reality, what we're facing here on this side of eternity. We settle for sickness. We settle for depression. We settle for those things on the inside of us and we don't wanna tell anybody else about it. But we need to understand today that when Jesus hands us a cracker and says, my body has been broken for you, it is not just some dead religious routine so that we can say we did it once a month in church and we checked the box and we fulfilled that sacrament, but there is power in acknowledging that it has already been done on our behalf. Come on, if you're here today, I believe as we take communion at the end of the service, there is healing for your body. There is wholeness for your mind. There is peace for your soul. Even if you're running from God, the relationship with him can be made right today because of the broken body of Jesus. He said, this is my body which is broken for you. 
From now on, don't remember Egypt, remember me. And then he takes the cup. Dang it, scrape juice. All right. <laughs> trying to see if they mess with me today. He takes the, the cup and he says, this is my blood. A new covenant is being established and it's going to be written in my blood. No longer do you subscribe to your old way of thinking and that old covenant. No, there's something new I'm doing and it's written in the very blood that I'm about to spill a few hours from now. Now, in order for there to be a new covenant, there has to be an old covenant. Yeah, good. Thank you, David. Appreciate that. In order for there to be a new covenant, there has to be an old covenant. And the old covenant, we all be familiar with this. If you've been in church for any length of time, you, maybe your parents made you memorize them, the Ten Commandments, the law. And you had to do the right thing over and over and over and over again. The law stated that any time you broke it, you were no longer right with God and there was a sacrifice necessary in order to remedy the relationship between you and God. That was the old covenant. Well, guess what? People broke the covenant and they broke the law all the time. I don't know about you, but, you know, do not lie. Okay, I haven't murdered anyone lately. Okay, we're in good, some of those commandments. But, you know, I think we all pretty consistently blow it somewhere in the Ten Commandments scale every single week. And that's what happened for God's people over and over and over and over again. And so because the covenant continually broke, people had to wait for a sacrifice to make them right with God once again. And so there was something called the Day of Atonement. And the Day of Atonement happened once a year. And on the Day of Atonement, they would take a spotless lamb and a spotless goat. And the high priest would take that lamb into the presence of God and it would slaughter the lamb right there. And the, the blood of that lamb, the death of that lamb would pay the price for the sins of the nation. And there'd be forgiveness by the shedding of the blood of the lamb. And then they would take a goat, and this is where we got the term scapegoat, by the way, for those of you who are interested. And the high priest would lay his hands on this poor little goat, and he would transfer all the sin of millions of people to this helpless little animal. And then he would send the animal out into the wilderness of the camp, and he would say, just as this goat is taking your sins away, so God has taken our sins away because of this sacrifice. That is not the goat you want to run into in the wilderness, okay? Just so you know, like, hey, little buddy. Uh, uh. <laughs> demonized little goat out there in the wilderness. Now, that worked temporarily. But, but guess what happened within a few days? People blew it again. Just like you did. And I'm just pointing it at you, you, all of us. You blow it again. And then what? You got to wait for the next sacrifice to make you right with God. And you are left to deal with your guilt and your shame and the condemnation and a distance from God for an extended period of time. Uh, the book of Hebrews uh, says it like this. The writer says, um, oh wait, hold on, there it is. The old system under the law of Moses was only a shadow, a dim preview of the things to come, not the good things themselves. The sacrifices under that system were repeated again and again, year after year, but they, look at this, they were never able to provide perfect cleansing for those who came to worship. If they could have provided perfect cleansing, the sacrifices would have stopped for the worshipers would have been purified once for all time and their feelings of guilt would have disappeared. But instead, those sacrifices actually only reminded them of their sins year after year. For it is not possible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. That is why when Christ came into the world, he said to God, you didn't want an animal sacrifice for sin offerings, but you have given me a body to offer. 
Jesus says, if the old covenant requires obedience and if the old covenant requires a sacrifice of blood, then I'm establishing a new covenant, but it's not by the blood of a goat and it's not by the blood of a sheep. It's gonna be by the blood of the spotless lamb of God. So he comes to earth and 33 years he lives among us and he faces every single temptation that you and I will face. Imagine it, every temptation, the temptation to lie, the temptation to lust, the temptation to disobey, and yet in every temptation, he proves to be victorious, and he lives the sinless life none of us could have lived. And then at the age of 33, unjustly condemned, he gives his life on a cross so that the spotless lamb could once and for all take away the sins of the world. No longer do we have to wait for next Sunday when we get into the presence of God and we can feel our conscience being cleansed again. No longer do we have to wait till our next confession before we can feel cleansed again. But in one moment, we can remember the blood of Jesus that was spilled on our behalf. And according to Romans, by his blood, we are made righteous. By his blood, we are made whole. By his blood, we have been set free and we no longer have to buy into a broken system of the law that keeps us condemned for there is no condemnation for those that are in Christ Jesus. The blood of the lamb has made us white as snow. This is the good news. This is the nature of the gospel we've all bought into. And yet sometimes it is the most difficult thing for us to buy into on a Tuesday and on a Thursday when we're facing sin and we blew it again and we live under the weight of condemnation and guilt. But listen, you were not designed to live that way. You were not designed to carry guilt in your flesh. You are incapable of carrying guilt and shame. It's not the way God intended it. All of that, everything you've done, everything you will do was put upon the cross so that we could live free, joyful, cleansed, whole, white as snow today. Let me just speak over anyone in the room today who's been carrying your sin a little too long. Let it go today. Stop. Stop trying to carry something that Jesus already paid the price for. There's a new covenant. It's been written in his blood. And you're made whole today. Now, those we've talked about many times before. The bucket. <laughs> it looked just like this in ancient times too. <laughs> the Bible tells us that at the end of this meal, as if things couldn't get any more awkward, right? So we're eating flesh, we're drinking blood, and then Jesus comes around the table and he begins to wash some people's feet. That's, that's a pretty awkward moment. Like, unsanitary, pretty gross, but Jesus gets down and he begins to wash each of his disciples' feet. Now that might sound gross to you already based on our culture, but let me paint an accurate picture for you because this was even more so kind of gruesome in theirs. Like they didn't have Adidas. There were no Nikes. There were no closed-toed shoes, no boots. There also weren't any cars to get you from place to place. So people walked around the planet in sandals all day long, dusty dirt roads. Unless, of course, they had the luxury of riding a camel or a donkey of some sort. But we all know what happens when camels and donkeys walk out on the road. They leave some stuff behind. So here are these open-toed disciples are walking along dirty, dusty, incredibly unsanitary roads 
all day long. Now it was customary when you showed up to someone's home for dinner for the lowest servant in the household to take a basin of water and a rag and begin to wash the feet of the people entering the home as a sign of honor and respect for them and also as a sign of honor and respect for the home. But apparently when Jesus and his disciples walked into dinner this night, nobody grabbed a basin and nobody grabbed a rag to clean off the, the feet of the guests. And instead of doing it at the beginning of the meal, as was normally custom, according to the scripture here, it says that Jesus waited till the end of the meal. Once he had painted this picture of what was about to take place through his sacrifice to wash his disciples feet. So it says he gets the basin and he girds himself with a rag. Now gird yourself just means that he attached, where's the belt that there it is. He attached a rag to himself. And one by one, he begins to go over to the disciples' feet and he washes their feet and then he wipes off the dirt and the grime and all the stuff they brought in with them onto this towel that he had girded himself with. Their filth attaching itself to him. Their past where they'd walked being attached to him, tied to him. He gets around the John and James and Jingleheimer and Smith and all the disciples. <laughs> and finally he comes to Peter and he says, okay, Peter, it's your turn. And Peter says, Lord, are you going to wash my feet? I think the role should be reversed here. And Jesus says, you don't understand what's happening right now. But after this, after I give my life, you'll understand what's happening here. Peter says, I just, I just don't think you should wash my feet. I, I, think, I think I should wash yours. And Jesus makes this incredible statement. He says, Peter, unless I wash you, you have no part in me. Unless I wash you, there is no way you're ever going to be clean enough to get to the Father. I remember um, when I was a new parent and uh, it was my responsibility to wash my kids in the bathtub every once in a while. Um, <laughs> it, was, it was fun for a season while they were uh, immobile inside that little contraption we put them in inside the bathtubs. But eventually they got to the point where they could move around in the bathtub and. Uh, at about two years old, any parent knows this, every child gets to a point where they would like to be in charge of their own life and uh, they become independent and they use this phrase over and over and over again. I do it, I do it, I do it, I do it. And I remember uh, as a young parent when my, uh, specifically my, my youngest daughter uh, who already struggles with hygiene habits, um, <laughs> began to enter into the I do it phase of her bathing life and she would sit in the bathtub and I would try to wash her and she'd run back and forth to either side of the bathtub evading me and saying over and over and over again, I do it, I do it, I do it, I do it. And so finally I would acquiesce and I would, I would say, okay, here's the soap and you, could, you can wash yourself. And she would take the little bar of soap at two or three years old and she would go, okay. She'd hand it back to me. I'm like, is that, is that it? You done? <laughs> like, 
okay, you need to wash the rest of yourself. Take this up and just. And meanwhile, she's standing in front of me with yogurt on her face and food still in her hair. And she thinks she's made herself clean. But as her father, I'm staring at her, looking at her and going, sweetheart, you don't realize, even despite your best effort, you're still filthy. You've still got stuff all over you. Just, just let me do it. Because if I do it, then I can get those areas you don't see. I can get into your hair where you, yesterday's macaroni and cheese is still, and I can, I can get that yogurt off your face, and I can clean those areas that you don't see, sweetheart. If, unless I clean you, this, this bath isn't going to work. I think that there are so many believers that are still in the I do it phase of their Christianity. Where Jesus comes and he's waiting to wash you. He's waiting to cleanse you. He says, I can take that addiction away. I can take that broken mindset away. I can take that family curse away. I can take that sickness away. I can take that sin pattern away. Just, just let me wash it off of you. And there are so many of us like, no, 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 I'll do it. It's fine, I, I, I can try better, I, I, can, I can work harder, I can, I can make myself clean, Jesus, just I promise, I'm gonna, I'm gonna do better next time, and I'm gonna go to more church, and I'm gonna start giving, I'm gonna start serving, and we enter into this phase where we think that by some sort of maturity, we're gonna arrive at this juncture where we finally learned how to clean ourselves and serve Jesus. But we're just Peter, looking at Jesus like, no, no, no. I, I got this one. And Jesus would say to you today, and he would say to me today, listen, unless I wash you, unless I cleanse you, you're never gonna be clean. It's time to finally surrender all of it over to me. And if you let me clean you, if you let me wipe that addiction away, if you let me wipe that mindset away, if you let me wipe that sin away, I will attach what's on you to myself. And you no longer have to walk with that garbage any longer. But in exchange, what's on me, I will give to you. I will give you my righteousness for your unrighteousness. I will give you my joy for your sorrow. I will give you my peace for your fear. I will give you my healing for your brokenness. Just let me clean you. I think this act was more than just a way of Jesus showing us how to serve one another, but symbolically he was displaying what was going to take place on this cross. That everything we carry, every bit of grime, every bit of dirt, every bit of sin was being transferred washed off of us and placed upon the sinless son of God so that we could receive something we could never attain on our own. The, the promise says it like this in, in the book of, uh, of Isaiah chapter 53. But he was pierced for our rebellion. He was crushed for our sins. He was beaten so that we could be made whole. He was whipped so that we could be healed. All of us like sheep have strayed away. We've left God's paths to follow our own. Yet the Lord laid on him the sins of us all. He attached our sins to Jesus. But it was the Lord's good plan to crush him and to cause him grief. 
Yet when his life was made an offering for sin, he will have many descendants. He will enjoy a long life and the Lord's good plan will prosper in his hands. When he sees all that is accomplished by his anguish, he will be satisfied. And because of his experience, my righteous servant will make it possible for many to be counted righteous. Today, you are counted righteous. Today, you are counted free. Today, you are counted whole because all of it has been transferred like the dirt to a rag onto the Savior who hung on a cross on your behalf. And our response to all of it, receive it. Just receive it. Don't work harder to try to figure it out. By faith, today as we take communion together, all we have to do is simply say, Jesus, I receive your healing. Jesus, I receive your peace. Jesus, I receive your forgiveness. I receive all that you have for me. Help me to walk this week a little closer to you. But if I blow it, I'm coming back to the cross again. I'm remembering again what you did for me. Amen? Hey, thanks for taking the time to listen to the Father's House podcast. We hope it helped you wherever you're at in your journey. And listen, we wanna pray with you if you're going through something right now that's difficult. You can go to our website, tfh.church, and click on the prayer and praise link and tell us how to join you in prayer. Until next time, be blessed.